you have your Bible with you, let me invite you to turn to 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 15. That's where we left off last week, and that's where we're going to pick up again today. I'd like to kind of give a little bit of a disclaimer for today's message and also next week's message. Um, one of the neat things that I love so much about Praise Point is that we're such a diverse group, and what I mean about that is we come through from so many different faith backgrounds. We have people who grew up UB, we have folks in here who grew up Nazarene, grew up Methodist, grew up, um, uh, let me see, Catholic. Uh, we also have some who uh, grew up Lutheran and so many different backgrounds, and that's a, such a fun compendium all coming together. One of the challenges in that is that a lot of these different faith traditions have different theological threads and theological teachings. And so when you come here, you may hear a few things that were different if you grew up Catholic or if you grew up uh, Lutheran or if you grew up Methodist or, you know, the list goes on and on. And so I, I want to throw this out here to today. I want to share with you today and next week some, um, what I think are some magnificent, magnificent things uh, about God's great salvation. And I think that they may be some ideas that you might be familiar with, but maybe you grew up thinking, oh, those ideas are completely wrong. And I just ask you, if you grew up with those, those kind of things um, taught to you, just take a minute and do the Kellogg's thing, taste it again for the first time, and, and see, if, see if what the scriptures teach is really true, really, really, really true, because I think that where we're going this week and next week is going to highlight or, or magnify or amplify how amazing God's salvation is, and particularly the fact that He chose you. In fact, according to what we read in Ephesians, He chose you before the foundations of the world were ever established. Now, you might say, well, wait a second, when you're using language like that, that's kind of sending me back from what, what I have grew up hearing but those are truths that we're going to see right from the text. So we can't deny them. We can't say, oh, no, they're, they're not true. We have to wrestle with them. And we have to see how magnificent God's salvation and His plan for our salvation has always been and then wrestle with that with kind of the things that we grew up with. And so that would be my little bit of a disclaimer before we get into today's lesson and next week's lesson, just to kind of before you shut down of some of the things that you're going to hear, just maybe take a minute and say, hmm, I wonder, just give it an opportunity to saturate and ask God that He would reveal then truth to you. Um, as we study these lessons. We've been looking at God's great salvation over the past few weeks, and last week we began to look at um, the positional security of the believer before God. Do you remember, um, in fact, on the back of the handouts, if you're not familiar with my, my habits, there's an insert inside your, your bulletin you might want to follow along. Typically, I have a habit of providing for you, um, uh, I, I have a habit of providing for you like a memory verse as we're going through a series. This time, I didn't do that, not because uh, I want to make life easy for you, but rather because I think there's something amazing that as we talk about God's great salvation, and those things are learning positional truths. 
learning positional truths about your new position in Christ and what that means. Because not only does this have theological implications, that's not really what this is after. At the end of the day, this is about learning how do we apply the things from the Scriptures to our practical everyday living, and what does that mean for me or imply for me as a believer? How does that give me security? How does that strengthen my faith? How does that help me to walk through life, really? How does that help me to go through what I'm going to experience today and, and next week? And so, as you may recall, we've been learning about positional truths, truths that are determined by one's position or one's standing before God. Our conclusion last week was that genuine Christian faith, that is, the truly justified person, can have complete assurance of your personal salvation. Have you ever, there's some denominations out there, and there's, there's some teachings out there that I just don't, I don't think it makes much sense, that their teaching is that when you look at the Bible and the, if God saves you, then you know, you really don't, can't ever really know that you're saved. That is until you stand before uh, God and as you're ready to enter into heaven, and then He's going to give you a thumbs up or a thumbs down and let you know whether or not you enter into heaven. I can't imagine going through life like that. Can you imagine that God would be in that kind of, uh, 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 the, that kind of a God who would not want us to know for sure that we are His children? And so when we read the Scriptures, we can see very clearly from the Scriptures, both the Old Testament and New Testament canons, teach us clearly that you as an individual can know in your knower your intellectual capacities and also confirm by the power of the Holy Spirit who is in you, that you can confirm that you are truly, truly a believer. That's, we, we call that assurance of salvation or security of the believer. That's where we ended last week. So how do you get there? Well, we get all kinds of texts, and we have different truths. In fact, I gave you uh, on last week's have, handout 11 tests, litmus tests, to confirm or to test whether or not you're truly in the faith. And those come from the book of 1 John in the New Testament. There's many more tests in the Scriptures than just those 11 tests, but those were some that I just wanted you to be able to ponder on and to think through. You can know without a doubt that you're saved. And if you spend much time in 2 Peter, and we're only going to spend a couple weeks here in 2 Peter, right around January, February, we're actually going to study the book of 2 Peter, and it will once again reinforce the ideas that we're going to be teaching. If you spend much time in 2 Peter or also pop over to, over to 1 John, you can quickly see these truths right from the Scriptures. They just pop off of the page at you, and that's God speaking to us and confirming His lessons and His, His uh, teachings to us. So let me take you back to where I left off last week. Remember, I promised last week that we would pick up today where we left off last week, and so that's where I want to take you. If you have your Bible with you, let me encourage you to personally be in that. Maybe you want to take a couple notes in the margins of your Bible. Feel free to do that. Um, uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, there's one in the pew in front of you or in the seat in front of you somewhere, and then you can also see up here on the screen. <clears throat> this is out of the English Standard Version, so if yours reads just a little bit different, understand that I'm just using the English Standard. Here's what it has to say. Um, His divine power, God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Not some things, notice this, 
believers, God has given you all things that pertain to life and godliness through the what? The knowledge of Him. Now, how do you get knowledge of God? Well, you have to learn about God. And how do you learn about God? Well, church is one way, but you have to commit and devote yourselves to studying the Scriptures. The more that we know about God, the more that we learn about God. The more that we learn about God, the more that we get to see all the things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. In other words, God has called us not only so that we can be saved, but he has called us to be saved so he could uh, increase his glory and reveal his excellence and his glory to this world, okay? By which he granted us his precious and very great promises. What are those? Those are all the spiritual promises that are contained in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. So that through them, those promises, you may become partakers of the divine nature. In other words, that you could be saved, having escaped from the corruption that is in this world because of sinful desire. So we escape sin, we escape death and all the things and the corruptions of this world. All you need to do is flip on the TV and you can see all kinds of messy, nasty things, right? Some of the things, unfortunately, that we laugh at are really sinful and really break God's heart having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Verse 5, for this reason, for what reason? For saving us and for drawing us out of this world. For this reason, make every effort, this is us, a command to us as believers, make every effort to supplement the faith, okay, so we profess that we have faith, with virtue. In virtue, we are to dive into Knowledge, so not our way to be good and to have the good qualities, virtuous qualities, admirable qualities, but then we need to increase, not just become a good person, but we need to increase that with adding knowledge, knowledge of God. Knowledge, once you learn what you're to do, then you're to do it, right? That's what self-control is about. And with self-control, steadfastness. Not only are you to do the things of God once you learn the things of God, but then you're to do those things regularly. You're to make them and incorporate them into your daily living, and they will help transform you more into the likeness of God. Self-control, steadfastness, and with steadfastness, godliness. Do you see the syllogism there? Do you see how adding each of these virtues one on top of each other or these characteristics one on top of these other leads to godliness? And godliness, which is fascinating, at the end of this syllogism, we have brotherly affection. You would think that brotherly affection would be easier to do earlier, right? But have, have you ever noticed that sometimes it's just hard, really hard to love some people? That's because we get to that place to where we can finally learn to love them, not in our own power, but through the power of Christ who lives in us, right? That's how we really learn to love and reveal God to others. Brotherly affections, you add on top of that love. Verse 8, I love this as Peter is writing this. This we'll discover here in a couple minutes. This is so fitting for his original audience that first received this letter. For if these qualities, these things that he just writ, wrote to them about, wrote to us about, are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
to keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent. Do you see this? To confirm your calling and election to confirm that God has drawn you to himself and that he has elected you, as we would read in Ephesians chapter 1, before the foundations of the earth, before the earth was, was ever formed, you were on God's mind. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an, inheritance, an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. One last section. Therefore, if you ever see a therefore in the Scriptures, you've got to discover what it's there for. Because of all these other things, therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities though you know them and are established in the truth that you have, I think it right, as long as I am in the body, to stir you up by way of reminder. Since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me, and I will make every effort uh, so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. What an amazing, what an amazing thing that Peter is, is writing here. Peter's about to die. You, you may not know this, but in 2 Peter is the last letter that Peter wrote before he was executed by Rome, uh, by the Roman Empire in Rome. He was in a place called the, the Mamertine Prison in Rome. In fact, if you go to Rome, you can still visit it today. You can get on uh, the internet and you can see photos of it. And according to Roman history, it was the worst of all Roman prisons. I mean, absolutely just a horrible place to be. The beatings and, and the living conditions were not anything that you and I would probably begin to fathom today. And in fact, even some of the, the most uh, horrible third world country living conditions today really don't match what was happening in the Mamertine prison because of the atrocities taking place there. That's the environment that Peter was in when he wrote this. He knew that his execution was coming up, he knew that he needed to write to the, the dispersed Jews, the diaspora, because the Jews were going through all kinds of persecutions at the time. The, the Roman emperor that was, that was on the throne at that time had been one of the worst and, uh, that we know of. In fact, Christian persecution was, was absolutely horrible. Under, under this emperor's reign, they would go to uh, Christians' homes, and they would persecute the, these Christians and try to get them to recant their faith. And one of the tactics that they used, if it was a young family, they would actually try to fillet the baby alive in order to get young, these people to repent uh, of their Christian faith. Just, just things that you and I couldn't, couldn't really think of in today's uh, modern society. And this is the condition 
that Peter is writing from, and this is the condition of the church at that time. It was a very persecuted church. And in the midst of this, do you know what Peter is calling them? Listen, I want you to make sure that you're confirming your calling, that you're confirming your election, and here's how you do it. You do it through the methodology of praying that God will help you add these qualities to your life so that at the end of the day, they will be able to identify that you are truly a Christian by the genuine, deep love that you have, the love that you have for your captors. You know what Peter, you know what uh, many of the early Christians did when they were being martyred? They were praying for their captors and those who were martyring them, and they were singing hymns in the midst of being tortured. I, I mean, in the Colosseum, one of the things that they did is they wrapped Christians with animal hides and wrapped meat around them and then freed the lions to them. And then what would happen is these people would be singing and praying, uh, singing psalms to the Lord and, and praying for their captors and praying for the audience that was watching them being brutally massacred. Uh, that's, that's not natural, <laughs> you know. That's, that's not normal, but that's the point. You can only have that kind of love if it is supernaturally empowered. And you know what, I, I wonder how many Christians in our contemporary society know of that kind of love, the kind of love that is fueled not by ourselves or not by our own ability to be good, but by the supernatural love of God. It's, it's easy to love those people who, who love us, not so easy to love the people who don't like us, and even harder for the people who want to see us dead. And what, what Peter is aiming at here is that um, he wants them to know that in the midst of all this stuff, you can completely and wholly trust God. Because God has your entire life in the palm of his hand. Uh, tradition tells us that Peter was executed on a cross, actually, after that he watched his wife being executed. He was executed on a cross, and tradition tells us that he asked to be hung upside down on a cross because he didn't deserve to be hung on the cross in the same manner that his Lord was. Now, whether or not he really was hung that way, I don't, I don't know. But it really rings true to Peter's character because the early Christians really had to learn what it was to trust God. And sometimes I think, especially in our American culture, because at least legally we're not persecuted, maybe philosophically at times we're persecuted. A lot of times it may seem like that now. There's probably going to come a time where it's even going to be worse. There's times it really doesn't, cost us or take us much to follow God, or at least self-identify ourselves as Christians. He wants Christians to know that they could fully trust that God is faithful, and He will accomplish everything that He Himself promised us. And here's where we need to go next. From that step, we need to know, despite our inability to keep God's law, God's grace is what saves us. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 says it's for by grace you have been saved through faith. 
not of works, so that no one can boast. The mechanism by which you and I are saved is God's grace, which enables us and gives us faith. Because if you and I were saved by works, well then, we're back to the Old Testament and the Mosaic Law. In fact, that's what the, primarily the book of Galatians is all about. We'll get to that. I'm kind of getting ahead of myself. Your assurance of salvation is made possible by the nature of that salvation. The nature of God's saving grace for your life is what gives us the ability to have assurance that we are indeed saved. That is to say, let me say it another way, that you can know that you're saved without a doubt because the nature of God's salvation is fixed. The nature of God's salvation is fixed. What God begins in us that is to say, specifically his salvation, he will bring to completion, right? Check out Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. God is faithful. He will complete in us what he began in us. Now, does that mean that there are some people out there that God hasn't finished what he already promised that he would complete? Absolutely not. When you look at the word of God, God's word is true. And unless there's an exception clause that's given or a conditional clause that is given in God's promises, then we need to interpret those as fixed. God says, if I begin a good work in you, what am I going to do? I'm going to bring it to completion. Right? <clears throat> and what we end up seeing out of these things is God is responsible for the initiation of your salvation. Listen to this. Even God is responsible for the preservation of your salvation. And God is responsible also for the completion of your salvation. God is responsible for the initiation, the preservation, and the completion of our salvation. Because God says, I'm doing these things. Do you remember Romans um, 8.37? We're more than conquerors through the power of Jesus Christ our Lord. This means that, that we completely and wholly conquer the trials of this life. More than conquerors. We, we fully, we absolutely 100% conquer the trials of of this life. Furthermore, nothing in Romans chapter 8 verses 38 and 39. Furthermore, nothing can separate a true Christian from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. Nothing. And Romans chapter 8 goes further to explain neither heights nor depths nor famine or anything or pestilence or anything of this world. Nothing either natural or supernatural can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. You know what that means? The implication to those things, not just the implication from those ones, but the also clarification from other verses. It means that when God saves you, it's a done deal. 
You're a child of God. You are a child of God. Nothing can change that. You see, because what happens, for, for those of us that are saved, what happens is God calls us to himself, he initiates our salvation, and then he preserves our salvation by his grace. And he grows in us. Do you remember the, the, the Beatitudes, the eight Beatitudes? If you go back to the first four Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, you'll see that God begins and initiates and preserves each of those things. The fourth Beatitude is, Blessed is he who hungers and thirsts after righteousness, for he shall be, what? Filled. Who hungers and thirsts after righteousness? The person that's saved. The person that's saved hungers and thirsts to know more of God. The security of our salvation rests in the character and the decisions of God. And isn't that a wonderful thing? Here's the implications in this. Have you ever had those moments in life to where you're like, oh, I messed up again. God, I'm sorry. Do you have, I have those a lot. And then I'm thinking, God, I'm so thankful that my salvation is not contingent upon my ability or my inability to maintain obedience to you. My salvation is your great salvation that's given to me, and it's a done deal. It's sealed. Because what you began in me, the Scriptures tell me that you're going to bring it to completion. The security of your salvation And my salvation, it's not based upon our ability or inability. It's not based upon our ability to do good works or not do good works because, listen, we're going to have ebbs and flows. And hopefully, as 2 Peter describes here, we're going to have more and more and more increasing times of obedience and fewer and fewer and fewer times of disobedience as we learn to be faithful to God. Because God's Spirit is at work in us and changing us and helping us to be more in the image of Christ. If you know anything about the book of Galatians, what had happened, actually the book of Galatians is Paul's first letter that that we have in our uh, New Testament. It was the first letter that he wrote. He was up in in, um, uh, Galatia in the region of Galatia, and there was some, some Jews, some Judaizers that were coming along behind Paul, and they were trying to say, okay, so if you really think that you're saved, because Gentiles were being converted up there, not Jews, if you really think that you're saved, here's what you need to do. Guys, you need to be circumcised, and then in addition to that, then you need to obey the Mosaic law. And Paul's saying, whoa, 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 whoa. You're saying that we're saved then by works, and that in fact, in Acts chapter 15, you read about the first church council that ever took place. That's the Council of Jerusalem. And that was the main topic to be discussed at the Council of Jerusalem. Do believers, do Christians, Gentile converts, need to obey the Mosaic law like the Jews always thought they did in the Old Testament, and particularly this issue of circumcision? Because let's, let's face it, that's not going to be an incentive for adult men to be saved. And what they began to understand and see clearly from the Holy Scriptures is that it's not these issues of works and following different ceremonial laws that we do in order to be saved. In fact, Paul uses some really strong language in the book of Galatians, and he says, who has bewitched you? Who who has taught you a different gospel 
You guys are going back to thinking that somehow that you're saved by the law. Do you think that God saved you by his grace and, and now that you're somehow preserved, your salvation is preserved by, by works? Did God's grace somehow stop? It's God's grace that saves us and God's grace that preserves us. And it's all the work and the initiation of God himself. That's why it's so important for the Galatians to remember. By the way, you can find that in Galatians chapter 1, verses 7 through 9. He reminds them that they're saved by grace. They're preserved by his grace. And so the same truths are true for us. True for all Christians. Listen, we're both saved and we are both preserved by God's grace. If you don't believe me, go to Galatians chapter 3 and you're going to see that really pop off of the page. You see, our salvation is not contingent upon our ability or our inability to do works. Now listen, what ends up happening is that as God changes us, as God brings us more into his likeness, what ends up happening is good works come out of that. It's just kind of the way things are. It's a natural byproduct of what God is doing on the inside. And and see, we live in a culture that kind of blurs the lines. We live in a culture, because Christianity, particularly in, in America, doesn't cost very much, that... People can be good and look, so to speak, like a Christian and do the same actions as a Christian, make even the same profession as, a, as Christians make, and some people will say, well, see, they're saved. When really internally, you know, we can't look into the heart. What ends up happening then is sooner or later, they fall away. And for those who are really good at pretending and acting, they may themselves even be deceived. And what you read in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, is what's going to happen, so tragic, so so scary, is that they're going to stand before God Almighty one day, and they're going to say, Lord, Lord, but didn't I do all these things in your name? You know what he's going to say? Depart from me, I... I never knew you. Listen, that's fantastic wording there. He doesn't say, you couldn't hold on to your salvation. Oh, if you could only get it. No, does he say, he says, I never knew you, meaning you were never saved. Some some tradition, the faith tradition I grew up in, uh, growing up in Sunday school and, <clears throat> and then later years in my life, they always taught that, that Judas, Judas the Iscariot, remember? Uh, remember him? He was one of the 12. They always taught that Judas lost his salvation. I grew up in a denomination that was very clear about teaching that you've got to be careful. You can lose your salvation. Be careful. And I, I think now, looking back, Boy, we just didn't know our scriptures real well because Jesus even turns one time and he talks to him and he says, even I chose all of you and yet one of you is a devil. This was before Judas ever betrayed him. You know what he's saying? I chose all 12 of you to come along with me and yet one of you is not saved. 
Isn't that wild? In fact, we see that regularly uh, within the Scriptures, uh, and you can see it through Acts, you can see it through the Gospels, particularly in the Gospel of John. You can see how John very much clarifies that Judas the Iscariot was, he was never saved, even though that he tagged along with Jesus for three and a half years, saw all the miracles, he actually got a chance to participate in the miracles. Can you imagine that? And yet, in all of that, he was never saved. You know, that's, for me, a scary thing because how many folks have gone to church their entire lives, have seen God do amazing things, and yet still have not repented, still have not really, truly known who God is. Isn't it wonderful to know that God calls us and preserves us by His grace? So the security of your salvation isn't, and my salvation isn't based upon my inability or my ability. It's, it's revealed at times by works, revealed by lifestyle, but not based upon. Security of your salvation is not contingent upon works. We're saved and we're preserved by God's grace and His grace alone. Don't think that God saved you by His calling and by His election, as the Scriptures teach. And I know some people may not really like those, those kinds of words. Yeah, I, I've noticed sometimes is, uh, we want to avoid works or words like predestination, and we want to avoid th- words like election. You get into the Scriptures, you can't avoid them. You can't avoid them. Proorzio, the Greek word for predestination, is used five times in the New Testament. You can't erase that from Scriptures. You can't do the Thomas Jefferson Bible. Uh, Thomas Jefferson cut certain sections of the New Testament uh, out of his Bible and had a much more narrow Bible by the time that he was finished. We can't do those kinds of things. We believe the whole counsel of God. God doesn't say, I'm going to save you by my grace, and then, hey, good luck to this. I hope that you guys can handle it out. And by the way, I'll finish your salvation if you make it through this lifetime. Maintain your salvation. God doesn't do that to us. He gives, remember, we learned so far that God has given us an engagement ring. He's given us the seal, the down payment of our salvation, which is what? The Holy Spirit. He's given us an engagement. And do you think that God will break off his engagement? Of course not. Remember, God is a reliable, and some people might say, well, engagement goes two ways, right? God could break it off, but then can't we break it off? Remember, there is nothing that could separate us from the love of God. Why? Because what he began in you, he'll bring it upon completion. You may recall the parable of the soils. Oftentimes it's called the parable of the sower, but I don't think that that makes much sense. It's all about really the soils. In Luke chapter 8, Matthew chapter 13, there's four different soils. Do you guys remember those? That lesson, that parable of Jesus? There's only one of those four soils that represents someone who's genuinely saved. I'd say, well, how do you know that? Jesus interpreted it for us. That's how I know it. Let me kind of 
just give you a real quick refresher on that parable. Uh, Jesus tells us that the the first soil, it falls along the path. The path is where the farmers would be. Well, actually, everybody would be walking along, and the, the ground was just so beaten down and so hard that the seed couldn't get into the soil. And so it says the birds of the air came and and snatched the seed that was taken, and it didn't have any time to take root. And he says that the birds of the air is likened to Satan coming and snatching the, the uh, word of God that is sown. By the way, the seed that is thrown out is the word of God, particularly a reference to the gospel. Then he tells us about another soil that receives God's word, the gospel. And these people, at first they joyfully receive it, um, they, they joyfully receive the, the Word of God, but because it's put in shallow soil, um, it doesn't have any root. In other words, they're genuinely not saved. Because if you remain in me and I remain in you, you will what? Bear much fruit. So one of the evidences that reveals that we're genuinely saved is what? Christians bear fruit. There is no such thing, by the way, as a fruitless Christian. Christians bear fruit. And so, at first, from our perspective, from our angle, these people may look like that they've been genuinely saved, but at the end of the day, you kind of, have you ever had that experience in life? You've seen somebody and maybe they've come to an altar or maybe they, that they um, have told you that they're a Christian, and then they're like a submarine. Where do they go? Or their lifestyle is anything but glorifying to God, which, by the way, reveals that they are children of the world and not children of God. People who have, who have kind of maybe one time made a profession of faith, or maybe they still even make a profession of faith, but they don't follow God at all. Well, they're that kind of soil, They're that soil, and at the end of the day, what does that soil reveal? That soil, according to Jesus' own interpretation, is they're not saved. Well, then there's a third kind of soil. Jesus says it looks like the real thing. It it looks like there's um, a genuine conversion that takes place. Maybe they joyfully receive the Word of God, and maybe they attend church, or maybe they do this or that. But then when the trials of this life come along, What ends up happening is the trials and challenges of this life just choke them up. The cares of this world choke them off, and then they fall away. And so they never grow and produce a crop. And and those kind of people are also not saved. How do you know that? Jesus interpreted the parable for us. So based upon Jesus' interpretation, they themselves are not saved. Then the fourth soil is the good soil. That's where the seed is, is, is uh, tossed, which is the word of God, the gospel, and it grows to full maturity, and it will produce a crop of 30, 60, and 100 times. That's the genuine Christian. One out of four soils represented there actually represents the genuine Christian. I think um, the, the, the Sermon on the Mount, 
must have really resonated with the apostles and particularly the apostle John because I can see clearly this lesson being repeated in John's writings. If you read the Gospel of John and 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, if you read the book of Revelation, you can see these kind of motifs in there uh, over and over. John makes several connecting comments that probably connects with them. In John um, uh, 6, verses 60 through 71, you can go there uh, sometime if you like, we read that Jesus is teaching a large group of his followers. These are people who had been going around and listening to Jesus. These are people who had been coming to church. And Jesus is teaching this large group, uh, and John uses this word that this group was Jesus' disciples. We might even supplant that, at least from the, the modern usage of it, that they're Christians, at least perceivably. Jesus does a very, very tough lesson, actually a series of tough lessons in, in John chapter 6. What ends up happening is the people who were there, they say, this is such a tough teaching. Who can take this? You know what they did? Do, do you remember what happened? They left. They stopped following Jesus that day. They turned away. And in fact, in Jesus' lifetime, there was, there was the, this ebb and flow of crowds around Jesus. Um, for a, a good period of time, Jesus was the most popular preacher in all of Israel. And isn't it fascinating that crowds are kind of weird? Um, And what I mean by that is crowds have their own dynamic that they just begin to draw people. Have you ever been going down the road and you see several cars pulled off and everybody's looking over in the field? What do you do? You don't stop or or you don't just keep driving saying whatever. You look, right? You look, you're like, huh, I wonder what they're looking at, right? There's just something about when you see a bunch of people together, it draws your attention and you're kind of curious. Huh, I wonder what they're doing. And, you know, sometimes that's what happens with crowds, and that's what happens with churches at times, to where the crowd just starts to attract a crowd, and, and that's exactly what happened with Jesus' teaching. There were people there that he knew were not saved. In fact, it goes on to describe that Jesus knew, after all these people had left, it even says that Jesus knew that they really didn't believe. He gave them this tough lesson a bunch of them who had every outward appearance of being saved left. And then Jesus, or John makes a comment that Jesus said, yeah, I knew that they really didn't believe in the first place. Then he turns to his disciples and he says, aren't you guys going to go too? You know what they say? To whom should we go? You have the words of life. That's evidence of genuine salvation is despite what everybody else is doing, we still, we still follow him. I bet you that stuck with John, because that wasn't the only time that that happened in Jesus' ministry. That stuck with John. Well, how do I know that that stuck with John? John wrote about it in uh, 1 John. 1 John, <clears throat> I believe it's uh, chapter 3, actually chapter 2. In John 6, 64, Jesus says that 
listen, these people never knew me. And then in 1 John chapter 2, 19, he recalls, I'm sure, the many times that these people came and they were talking to him, and he says, they went out from us, but they were never of us. They went out from us, but they were never of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out. That is, that it might be plain or become plain that they're not all of us. In other words, the fact that they left revealed that they really didn't believe, that they genuinely weren't saved. That's what this really means. It means that when someone looks like they're saved but abandons Christ later, the fact is that they've abandoned him reveals that they probably were never even saved in the first place. They would have remained. Why? Because genuine salvation fixes us in God's grace. And nothing can pull you out of that grace. Isn't that beautiful news? I, I mean, just think about it. I'm sharing this today not to, not to be a theologian or not to, to challenge that which you've believed maybe for years. I'm sharing this today because this is taught right from the scriptures, right from the, the passages themselves. And you know what it reveals? How much God loves you. How amazing His salvation is. He called you to be His children. If you've become His children, it's done. In the trials and the tribulations and the issues and the pains that we go through in this lifetime, the things that emotionally can take us in one direction or another, I wonder if I'm really saved. Gee whiz, if I was really saved, I wouldn't be acting this way. By the way, do you know that Satan and his demons speak to us in those kind of terms? If you're really saved, you wouldn't be acting this way. Can't you see that God doesn't really love you? Oh. Can't you tell that you're acting this way because all this God stuff is fake? I'm sure you've never heard those things cross your heart or your mind. Those are all lies from the pit of hell. Because what we do is we rely upon it's fixed. I'm a child of God. I've been justified by his grace. I'm held in his hand. Nothing can rip me out of his hand. Nothing can separate me from the love of God. This stuff that I go through in this lifetime, yeah, I might fail, I might fall down, but God has preserved me and sustained me by his love and by his grace. Nothing can rip me from that. It's done. My sin has been paid for at the cross in the blood of Jesus Christ. And just like he was resurrected, we're going to be resurrected as well. Isn't that beautiful? That's good news. Once you're saved, you're in. Don't, don't fear losing your salvation because God sustains you. God preserves you. God didn't you didn't make a covenant with God. God made a covenant with you. Do you remember the Abrahamic covenant? 
in the Old Testament. God came to Abraham and he says, listen, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. Abraham has this dream and it's a, it's a covenantal dream about this animal being sacrificed and God walks through the middle of that and establishes it. Abraham doesn't have to walk through that covenant. Why? Because it's an unconditional covenant. God said it and God's going to do it. He's going to accomplish it. It isn't based upon the works of Abraham. It's based upon the, uh, the sovereignty of God. Our salvation is that same way. It's God's unconditional love being poured out upon us, securing our salvation once and for all. That's how magnificent this love really is for us. Let me sum this up. I know it's been long, and I appreciate your patience. I I think it's worth mauling over these things because it reveals the magnificence of of God. In fact, next week, what we're going to talk about is we're going to talk about God's electing power. Because what this could humanly lead to is this could lead to a faulty thought that, well, well, gee whiz, if God chooses us, and then he must not choose others, and that shows that he doesn't love others, and boy, why do we preach the gospel? And you know, it leads to all those kinds of things that take us down a real slippery slope. That's what we need to talk about last week. But first, I want to remind you that God's salvation fixes you in his grace, fixes you. The positional truth now is you were once a vessel of wrath condemned to hell because of the sin of Adam, the sin that you and I inherited us, and then out of the, God uh, caught us as a burning ember and snatched us from going to hell, and he has fixed us in his grace, secured us by his hand and his sovereignty. You are positionally a permanent child of God if you're saved. You might say, well, wait a second, you're, you're talking with some language here that maybe makes me feel like I don't have anything to do with it. Well, from God's position, it may be a look a little bit different from our position, though. What are we supposed to do? We're to repent, we're to change our minds, we're to, to follow God, and so, yes, from our position, we have the ability to choose. But from God's grace... It's directed by election. God chose us before the foundations of the world. That's how much God loves you. You are so special to God that you were on his mind before he even cast out the first star. And that's where we need to pick up next week. Now listen, I understand very clear, and let me invite the worship team to head back up. I understand that some of this may go against the grain of what you've learned for years. And, you, you know, I, I guess I've had quite a few years to think through these things. You might be a, just kind of an empty slate, and you haven't ever heard whether God predestines us or elects us or how that all works and the mechanisms behind that. But I just ask... Wherever you're at theologically and whatever you grew up with, wrestle through these truths. Because at the end of the day, the matter is, is you can't change the Word of God. So these passages mean something very clear. And I think that they 
reveal, and there are only a few of just a, a, a plethora of passages in the, in the Scriptures that reveals that we are secured by the grace of God, that we're called, and we don't have to worry about losing our salvation because it's God's engagement gift to us. It's His down payment on what we're going to inherit eternally. So when you go through those emotional challenges in life, when you go through those mental challenges or those testings, you can know that you know that you know that you are indeed saved and a child of God if you have those evidences that we've talked about. And, and today you might be saying, boy, this sounds like I, I may not have a choice in the matter. Well, that's not true either because you too have the ability to repent. You can follow God with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you can even begin that choice today. And so today, I don't know where you're at theologically. I don't know where you're at even positionally before God. But I want to challenge you to get to know this amazing God and His great salvation. And if you don't know that yet, start it today. Get to know God with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength because He loves you. Father in heaven, I thank you for your love for us. Um, these texts just reveal over and over how amazing your salvation really has been and is and always will be. Thank you for loving us so extravagantly, so open-endedly that our, our salvation isn't contingent upon our frailty because at the end of the day, our human condition is so frail. Our minds and our wills are so weak. We need your supernatural indwelling to change us, to make us new, to give us a, a new heart that wants to follow you. And so today, Father, I'm praying and I'm asking that if there is a, a person here who does not personally know you, that today that they would make a choice to follow you. Father, clarify our salvation for us. Help us to understand it, and out of that knowledge, help us to grow. Strengthen our faith. We pray these things, and we plead them humbly as we know how in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ today. All of God's people, will you say with me this morning? Amen.